one of the things that this second lockdown has, I think, starting to do to some of us is to make us start to think, are we now, now that we're back in this national lockdown, are we now just stuck in a cycle? And are we actually, we're maybe just starting to doubt, are we actually progressing anywhere? Um, and are we, are we end, heading towards some kind of final destination or, or not? And also within that, we maybe start to question, is, is this final destination actually going to be any good when we do get there? Is it going to be worth going through all of this? Are we, is it going to be worth the, the frustration, the, uh, the disappointment, the loss? Is it going to be worth doing lectures over Zoom? Is it going to be worth all the face mask wearing? Is it going to be worth having to press unmute every single time you want to speak? And we have been in this series in the, the end of the book of Revelation called A Certain Future. And a big part of what it is that we're doing in this series is, is we're looking and seeing that we are not in, as much as it feels like it, we are not in just an endless cycle that keeps repeating itself, even on a, whether on a small scale or on a big historical scale. But we are heading towards somewhere. We are progressing towards a final place that we are going to be. And last week we started to see what this place is going to look like. And we started to look at the new heavens and the new earth as the Bible talks about it. How after this creation comes to an end, we will be living on a physical real earth with God. And what we saw last week was that rather than going into lots of detail about what this place is going to look like in the passage we just looked at, really what the Bible wanted to tell us was just simply the heart of God. How God just longs to be with us as his people and to serve us and look after us and put us right at the centre of his new creation. And you might remember that amazing verse three in chapter 21 that we looked at, that the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be their God and they will be his people and God himself will be amongst them as their God. And today I'm calling our message, Here Comes the Bride. And we are going to look as this picture expands and develops that it's going to include not just God, but ourselves. It's, we are going to be in this picture and marvellously it doesn't get any less good than what we looked at last week. So I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. If you've got your Bible reading from verse 9 this time down to verse 21. The words should appear on the screen there. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the 12 the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates and on the wall of the city had 12 uh, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The, wind, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, third agate the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tw tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Here we see a vast description of a city. And we are here deep in the realm of heavenly vision language. That although this scripture is describing something that is very, very real, it is not using literal language to describe exactly what it is. It is using metaphorical and poetic language to, to bring to life something that is beyond human dis description and bringing to life a spiritual reality that is real, but isn't necessarily what it first appears as. And we see uh, evidence of this almost within the passage, that verse 17, that, that thing where it says it's a human measurement, but it's also an angel's measurement. It's, it's pointing to the fact that we are talking about something that isn't quite as it first appears. There are spiritual dimensions going on that we can't necessarily grab hold of or don't necessarily look as they first appear. And we're, in verse 10, we're introduced to this holy city it talks of it says the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god and then we read of of walls and gates and measurements and gold and for for all the life of it it looks like this is talking about a place but if we just reverse one verse we see that the angel says first to john come i will show you the bride the wife of the lamb that it appears maybe to be talking about a city or a place but actually it's a deeply personal language that is speaking of a, of a bride a wife and actually throughout scripture we read of uh, of god referring to his people as as a bride in quite feminine language of people joined to him as his bride we see it in the in the prophet isaiah but we see it probably most uh most in in ephesians chapter 5 where paul actually refers to the church as the bride of christ and he also refers to this day that we're talking of here he, it talks of jesus cleansing and readying his church and he says that he might present the church to himself in splendor holy and without blemish and you notice the language here of a holy city that what we're reading about here is not a place but a people that although we're in language of walls and measurements and gates and it necessarily then for us literal minded people we think this must be a place it is actually talking about a people and just as last week we find that we're not talking about what is this new creation going to look like but rather who is going to be there and not just is do we do we learn of God like we did last week, but here we have 13 verses elaborating on who we are going to be. That God doesn't want to just know, tell us who we're going to be with, but who we are going to become. And this is fairly complex imagery. It's difficult on first reading to know exactly what is going on. 
And so I want to today draw out, rather than just go through it line by line, actually just draw out three strands that I think the whole passage is telling us of, of who we are going to be to help us to really long for this day that is coming in the future. The first of these things is that this, this passage tells us that we are going to be beautiful. And all of us want to be beautiful. We might not use that language, we might not say is that word, but all of us want to be handsome or striking or stunning or we want to look good. Our appearance, it matters to us. And one of the immediate things that we see in this passage is how stunning we are going to be in the new creation. We see it in verse two that was just before our passage where the bride first comes up and it says that she is adorned or your translation might say beautifully dressed. And then verse 11 picks it up where it says, having the glory of God. This bride's radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it goes on then in verse 18 and says, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And then 19 and 20, we have that list of jewels that I'm not going to read out again. Uh, and there's deeper significance that we'll get into in a minute. But the first impression that we're meant to get from this is that John is almost just trying to, to, to describe this, the, the indescribable. And he's saying, oh, it's, it's a little bit like by Jasper and a little bit like Carnelian and, and Chrysoprase and don't know what that is. And the Gat. And it, but it's just kind of it's so beautiful that it's just impossible to try and put language to it and you notice that he kind of falls down logical trap doors where twice he says it's it's like gold like transparent glass and you think those john you're just wrong that's just not what gold looks like but gold in the ancient world was the most valuable thing that you could find and transparent glass was almost impossible to get your hands on that the technology and expertise to make it was just it was just not around. So when people saw it, they, I mean, imagine you'd never seen clear glass before and then you saw it. People were just captivated. It's not that it was precious in the sense of it's rare, like we've got it all the time now, but it was just mesmeric to people. They just couldn't believe it. How did you get this clear? And that's the image that John's describing. It's like the most valuable and most captivating, can't take your eyes off it, beauty. And we might think, why on earth is John having such trouble describing the beauty of this bride? Well, we see it really all stems from verse 11, where it says he, this bride is having the glory of God. That the bride, God's people, us, we will be made beautiful, not by having beauty that is within us come to the fore, but we will be made beauty by the very beauty of God. We will be clothed in him and that is what will make us radiant and beautiful. We, this is not our own beauty. This is not a beauty that we can create or discover. This is a beauty that we have no claim over, that is not ours in any way, yet as a gift is given to us. All of us know some kind of beauty inadequacy within us. 
All of us know what it is like to look in the mirror and think, I wish things were a little bit different. I wish I was a had a few less wrinkles or I wish that I had a bit more of that or a bit less of that or didn't have that or that was a bit more tucked in. All of us know what it's like to have some kind of dissatisfaction with how we look and with our bodies. And, and sadly for some, that's actually even more pronounced that you wouldn't say you have a dissatisfaction with your body, but almost a dissatisfaction in your body. And here I think we see that the desire for us to, to feel good and to feel satisfied within our body and to feel beautiful is a God-given one. But I think our understanding of what the solution is to that desire is what has become disordered. Hannah and I have this uh, photo of ourselves where uh, we've just come back from honeymoon and so after it we we went to a wedding and so in this photo we are well dressed, we're younger than we are now, we were tanned from holiday, it was amazing, we are still slim from our wedding day and we often look at that photo and we joke with one another that that is the best we will ever look. We will never, that is our peak, there's no going back to that. That is us at our absolute best. And of course we, we joke with one another, but in your worst moments you can think, I will never look like that again. That I, I really, like as time goes on, I really will just get less attractive. And that is how we have been formed to think of beauty. That beauty and attractiveness, it's something that fades. It's something that you get further away from as time goes on. That is always something that you're looking back to. That beauty is something that we have to chase. If you want beauty, you've got to invest your time into it. You've got to exercise relentlessly. If you want beauty, you've got to put your money into it. You've got to buy the right foods. You've got to buy the right face creams. And that's if you want to get more beauty or maybe even just to cling on to the beauty that you have. And perhaps the worst of how we have been formed to think of beauty is just that some people have it and some people don't. But here we see a cosmic redefining of what beauty really is. Here we see that beauty is not something that we just have to look back to, but that we are looking forward to. That it's not something that it gets further and further away as time goes on, but that with each passing day we are getting closer to real beauty. It's not something that we have to chase after, not something that we're working towards relentlessly, just trying harder and harder and harder to get more beauty or to cling on to our beauty, but it's something that is given to us, a gift, a guarantee, part of our inheritance in God and the kindness overflowing into our lives is that he wants to make us beautiful. And we see that this is not something that some will have and that others won't, but we see that this is for everybody. All can receive this gift. And we don't quite know what it's going to look like. Paul gives us maybe the biggest hint that we've got in scripture where he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that the perishable body must put on, so that's our body now, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And in that same passage, he talks about how Jesus's resurrection body is the first fruit so that ours will look like his. 
And so we know that we'll have some kind of physical, real body to go along with the physical, real earth that we're on. And we know that we will be recognisable. We will still have the same kind of personality, I guess, or that we will, we will still look like Duncan or, or whoever you happen to be. We'll still have that continuity. But we also know that we will look perfectly stunning in this new creation as we put on our imperishable, immortal bodies. And I'm sure that you have got your equivalent photo uh, to me and Hannah, whether it's something that you look, look at and think, I'll never look like that again. Or for you, maybe it's not actually something from your past, but maybe someone's social media feed or uh, a particular personality or person that just whenever you see them, you think, I will never look like them. I will never have their beauty. And whenever you see them, it triggers thoughts of, I am never going to look like that. I want you to, to make a, a pledge to yourself that whenever you see whatever it is, that photo, that feed, that person, whenever you see them now, you are not going to think, I'll never look like that. But I want you to choose to think instead, no, one day Jesus is going to wrap me up in his glory and I will be radiant in a way that human language cannot do justice to. I am going to be radiant and beautiful in a way that I, well, I just cannot help but be beautiful. I will never not be beautiful, but that will just be the default place of who I am. I'll no longer have bedhead when I wake up in the morning. I won't have to put my face on. I won't have to only be able to take photos from this angle so that I can hide this part of my body. No, you'll be completely at ease and have no insecurity at all. You'll be able to look at yourself knowing I look like perfection. That is where we're headed. So that's the first thing. The first thing this passage tells us is we are going to be beautiful. The second is that we are going to be whole. I think one of the anxieties that we can have of eternity is, are we actually going to enjoy it? And we might laugh about it and joke about it, but I think sometimes we do have these, these thoughts. Of it, it sounds a lot like we are going to do the same thing for eternity. And the lack of options and variety can seem like a bit of a concern for us. But I think that what that reveals to us is, is just how divided and fragmented our hearts have become. There are four different images in here that are, that are linked um, together that I just want to, to draw out for us. The first are linked, well, the first two are linked to the, the list of jewels that we see at the end of the passage, you might remember. Again, I won't read them out, but there is an almost identical list of jewels in Ezekiel chapter 28. And that, that same pretty much list of jewels that are being listed there are used to describe the Garden of Eden, the original place where God's dwelling presence was found. And then the second reference to these jewels that you can find in scripture, again, almost exactly the same list, is in Ezekiel chapter 28, where, uh, sorry, not Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 28, where the high priest's breastplate, uh, breastpiece that goes on what's called his ephod, basically a piece of clothing that he puts on, that is, the jewels are on that, and it is essentially a, a piece of clothing that acts as a portable place of the dwelling place of God, the presence of God. And then we see here in verse 16 uh, where 
he measured the city with his rod. So the city's dimensions it's talking of here, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. So it's talking of a cube here. And if you know something of your Old Testament, you might be aware that a cube in, in biblical thought was, it, it draws to mind Solomon's temple and the Holy of Holies that was found in there, the single room that was covered in gold, just like this city, that was the dwelling place of God. That is the place where God's presence turned up. And then actually the whole vision has many, many parallels, which I won't list now, but is in many ways parallel to a vision that Ezekiel has in chapter chapters 43 to 48, which he is talking about a city temple kind of structure where there is fit for the presence of God to return to his people. That all four of these references, they all reference places that are, that are the, where the presence of God dwells. That again, God is just wanting to reiterate to his people, I am going to be amongst you. I can't, I want to come and dwell with you and be with you. But there's another dimension is that these places and these things were custom built, purpose made for just one thing. To be where the presence of God dwells. They were just built for one purpose. We do not know what it is like to feel like we are made for just one thing. Even when we know what we are made for, we don't know what we are made for. Even as believers, we might be able to say amen to Augustine's famous line that our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. We might know we are made for God and we are made to live for him. We might believe we are made for God and we are meant to live for him. But we try as we might, we struggle to live it out in a wholehearted, single purpose kind of way. That we find actually our hearts are conflicted, we're divided, that in some way we are fragmented people. There is a part of us that really, truly believes, I know that I will only be whole and full and satisfied if I live for God and I sacrificially follow him with everything. But the problem is there are also parts of us that think, oh, but maybe I also need to have a successful job or maybe I also need to live in a way that gets me lots of money in the bank or maybe I just need to live in a way that means that, my, that I don't seem super weird to my friends. And yet we see here that as we enter into the new creation, as we put on our resurrection bodies, we will find that our fragmented and divided hearts are finally made whole. That we will be as Eden, we will be as this breast piece, we will be as the, the holy of holies where we just know ourselves to be purpose built, handcrafted, bespoke made for one purpose to simply be the dwelling place of God. But of course we are not just inanimate objects and places like those things, but we are a people. We're a bride. And I want you to think back to the last time you were at a wedding and you saw the bride appear. This analogy doesn't work too well if the last wedding you were at, you were the bride. So think of the last wedding you were at where you were not the bride. When you saw the bride appear at the entrance, 
you knew she was made for one thing. Nobody, when she comes in, is wondering, oh, I wonder what the bride is going to do next. I wonder which chair she might go and sit on, or I, I wonder which man she's going to pick to go and stand next to. Now, as the bride, she has just one purpose in that moment, to be with her groom, to be united to him. But of course, as a person, she doesn't just have one purpose, but she also has one heart desire, one thing that she longs for, to be with her beloved. To, to, she's got her eyes fixed on him. She sees him as she comes in. And it would be unnatural. It would be against who, the very nature of her being to go and do anything else. There is, she knows there's just one thing that will satisfy me. And he is right there just a few steps away. And that is exactly the scene that we have pictured for us here. The, the wife of the lamb, the bride appears to be united with God. And we see that when we are here and when we see him as his bride, we, our eyes will be fixed on him and we will finally know what it is like to be of singular purpose and desire in our hearts, to not be conflicted, to not be fragmented. That the lack of options in the new creation does sound a bit boring to us now because our hearts have been fragmented into a million tiny pieces and we can't imagine that just one thing for eternity will satisfy us. But when we are made whole again by him as we enter into our new bodies, our only desire will be to be with him. We will have no indecision, no questioning. Oh, what do we want to do today? Well, there'll be no looking at our watch, wondering when this is going to come to an end and we can move on to something else. Everything else will seem boring, trivial, mundane in comparison. We see here God is building the new creation, not only so that we would know the fullness of his presence, but that we might know wholeness within ourselves that we might finally understand and feel like this is what I'm made for. This is the resting place of my heart. We will be with him and we will be whole. And finally, so we will be beautiful, we will be whole, and finally we will be ordered. We will not only have wholeness in our hearts, but we will have wholeness in society. You might notice in this passage, there is an awful lot of measuring that goes on. Um, in verse 15, the angel measures with his rod of gold. He measures the city, measures the gates, measures the walls, and he measures them again. And it's kind of repetitive. And we think, what's, he, what's going on here? Well, part of the, the measuring, particularly the measuring of the walls, is to show these walls are high. This place is safe. It's secure. No evil can get in. Not even There's not even a threat of evil for this place because evil has been dealt with, as we've seen in previous weeks. But the measuring also speaks of the vastness of this place. In the measuring, it says that this that each side is 12,000 stadia long, which is 1,500 miles. So this city is a big place. And it's speaking of many, many people will make up this society. And our experience of society where there is lots and lots and lots of people is that the more problem, more people there are, the more problems there are. The more diversity, the more clash of opinions, the more I want to go this way, I want to go that way. 
If you ever tried to make a decision in a group of more than about four people, you know exactly what I mean. Then imagine that as a whole society and you're pretty much there. But the measuring also tells us of accuracy and precision of everything in its proper place, everything exactly as it should be. And again, we're not talking about a place, we're talking about a people, we're talking about a totally ordered people, which might sound a bit odd, but maybe think of it as a totally harmonious and whole society. In Revelation chapter 7, there is a picture exactly of this, speaking of exactly the same time, the new creation. Let me just read you verses 9 and 10. Another vision. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. There's your vastness of society, 12,000 stadia, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. An impossibly large number of people from every nation, tribe, people and language. This is a recipe for disaster. It should be absolute chaos. And yet, from maximum diversity, somehow Jesus is able to bring about maximum unity. One of the greatest joys we've had at Revelation Church is that we've only been going for two years. Um, we're, not a, we're not a huge church, but the, the sheer diversity that God has brought amongst us has been an absolute joy. We've had diversity of of ethnicities and cultures. I think last count, this is an old count, we've had uh, at least 40 different nationalities represented in our church over the last two years. We've had diversity of age and life experience. And here is hope for us that in that diversity, unity can happen. That this is actually what the church is meant to look like. And Hannah and I, we never set out for the church to look like this explicitly. We didn't think let's try and do this. But God in his grace has joined us all together. Only the lamb can do this. This can only happen. This kind of unity only happens around the throne. That as each person in this new creation comes together, single minded now in who they are, what they're made to do, what their purpose is, what their desire is. is I just want to be around the lamb. As we see that happen, this isn't just a picture of devotion and worship for Jesus, as we often refer it to. Do you notice this is a picture of a totally ordered and harmonious society? We have just seen in the United States what many commentators are saying is the most divided or divisive election that has happened in, in, in decades. And I think at the same time, what we're seeing on a, on a global scale is almost a humbling of the United States on, a, on the, the world stage. And it seems like from afar looking in that that nobody is getting what they want from this election and that the whole thing seems to be defined by people defining themselves as what they're against rather than what they're for. And that it seems to be a particularly joyless uh, experience and that people are mostly marked by anger and bitterness in, in the whole thing. That we see when looking at that, that divisions destroy. And that's exactly what the Bible talks about. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that one of the major themes of that is, is rooting out some of the division that's come in there. The other side of it, the book of Ephesians, all about how we can find unity as the church only through Christ. And here we see that we will know the joy 
of being in an undivided whole society when we're here. That we will be living in a world where everyone believes the same thing. Everyone thinks in the same way. Everyone cherishes the same thing. That while we will retain all of our individuality, all of our personality, all of our uniqueness, as we were talking about a little bit before, we as a society will know complete cohesion. That as we have a singleness of purpose and desire together, that will lead to an ordered, just and peaceful society, the place that we all long to be in. With no fractures, no division, no anger and no bitterness towards one another. And we'll draw to an end just soon, but I, I just want us as Christians to dwell on this picture for a little bit. That for us as a church, particularly in the West, but I imagine almost wherever you've come from, because this is happening on a global level now, we are so used to being on the fringes of society. We're so used to being seen by the rest of the world as as a people uh, who, uh, with a range of views that, that range from kind of vaguely humiliating views to outright dangerous beliefs. When we enter into the new creation as a people, we will no longer be on the margins. We won't have to watch what we say out of concern for not being tolerant enough. We won't have to fear being cancelled. We won't have to think, how can I say this particular thing in a way that won't offend that person? Or how can I communicate this difficult truth in love? But instead, we will be accepted, loved and championed for what we believe. We will be in a position where the rest of the city in which we live will say yes and amen to what we stand for. You know, it is so tiring living in the counterculture. It's exhausting for us to constantly have to be picking through every moral issue that comes up. And it comes to us in a profoundly unchristian, secular way. And we then have to take it in, reframe it in a Christian way, try and hold everything together and try and live it out. And it's it's tiring. I don't know if you too are, are just tired of trying to keep swimming upstream against the flow of how culture and the general world seems to be living. That in many ways, I think all of us just sort of long for, oh, I just like to be able to relax and just get carried along by the flow of society and the way things are going. And if that's you, my encouragement to you and my encouragement to myself would be just keep going because our day is coming. There is coming a day where we will know the rest from swimming against the, count, the culture and we will be very much in the flow of what society thinks at large. We will be in a place where we think with one heart and one mind of, of what is important and what is real and what is truth. And as much as we don't know about what life in this society is gonna look like, what we do know is that we are gonna have total unity with each other in a way that we don't even have now as a church. And what this then leads on to is complete enjoyment of one another's company, charity for one another, compatibility, chemistry with each other on a way that is just incomprehensible for us now. We are going to have 
family like we've never known it before. We will be home. And that is exactly what it means to be part of this city, is to come home. In the ancient world, to be outside of the city was to be in the wilderness or to find yourself in exile, unsafe. And since the Garden of Eden, since the fall from there, we have been, as a human race, separated from God. We have been out of the garden and in the wilderness. And today, as we receive the gospel, as we give our lives to following Jesus, as we live lives of following the Lamb, we are living out the promise of our eventual homecoming, our eventual entering into the city. We are living out the promise that our exile is coming to an end, that we will no longer be living in the wilderness, but we will enter into the richness of the city and we will be home. And this is what God wants us to know. This is what he's revealing to us in this passage. That this is what our certain future looks like. This day is coming. That as we battle through the wilderness now, as we fight through the wilderness of global pandemics and seemingly endless cycles of lockdown, as we fight through the wilderness of not being able to meet together, of being a, of being a strange bunch of people seen as having odd views in society, he wants us to know this is where we're headed. And this is what we will become. We will become a people wrapped in the glory of God himself, given the, his beauty, the beauty that we truly long for. A people whose hearts are made whole and we'll know the wonder of having a singularity of purpose and desire as we fix our eyes on him and we find all of our desires met in him. And we will know the rest and the peace that comes from an ordered society. Our inheritance of eternal dwelling with him. And as always in Revelation, the promise that we read is also a call to live in light of the promise. And the bride that we see here depicted as a city woman is the second city woman that we have encountered in our series. You might remember right at the beginning of our series, chapter 17, we met Babylon. But unlike the bride, Babylon was not pure. She was defiled. She was not righteous. She was corrupt. She was not faithful, but she was unfaithful. That depicting the bride as a city woman is a deliberate thing here from John. He's deliberately presenting this bride as an anti-Babylon. And his implicit question to us and to us this morning is which city woman are you going to pledge your allegiance to? Because Babylon is not here. Babylon doesn't make it through this far. Babylon has been consumed, as we've seen, by the lake of fire. And again, we see that contrast that Revelation always brings out, that you either go one way or the other. Your life either leads to ruin or it leads to renewal. And again, the message of Revelation is choose to live for the Lamb. Choose renewal. Choose to live a life faithful to him that does not compromise. 
And for, from January, I really want to make this practical for us. I want to help us see what does it look like to live out a faithful, uncompromised life of living for Jesus in a society and a culture that does not live for him. And so we're going to be looking as in our next teaching series from January at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and his kingdom manifesto of how do you live this life in a world that does not live it. But for now, We've got that to look forward to. But for now, what he wants us to see and what he wants us to celebrate is how thoroughly good and perfect things will be when the kingdom that Jesus was speaking out about then comes in its fullness.